Hey, I'm MJ Taller, also known as a black wine guy. I went from being a totally obsessed wine newbie to becoming the world's first ever African-American fine and rare wine auctioneer in less than three years. In this show, I'll be talking to the mavericks, the philosophers, the players, and the deep thinkers who inhabit the world of wine. They'll share their experiences on how they made it, but more importantly, how they failed and got back up again. So grab a glass and let's get to it. This is the Black Wine Guy Experience. Hey everybody, what's up? It's your boy MJ. Welcome to the Black Wine Guy Experience. My guest today has been making critically acclaimed wines for nearly three decades and is known for his exquisite Pinot Noirs, Adam Lee. Adam started in wine working retail at Austin Wine and Spirits. He quickly went on to become the president of the three-store chain. And in 1993, he moved to Northern California and would launch Siduri Wines a year later. His first vintage caught the attention of influential wine critic Robert Parker, who rated his 1994 Sidori Rose Vineyard Pinot Noir as one of the 10 best California Pinot Noirs for that vintage. In 2017, Adam launched Clarice Wine Company in honor of his grandmother and once again received accolades right out of the gate. And in 2019, he teamed up with famed French winemaker and Grenache specialist Philippe Cambie, and together they started Beaumarchais Winery, producing Philippe's first ever Pinot Noir. Welcome, Adam. Thank you. It's so good to be here. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add? Uh, no, I think that's pretty good. Okay, we've got a little good swap. Uh, what wines are we drinking this afternoon? What'd you, what do what we got here? So brought three different wines. Brought a new project that I'm dealing with called Busy Signal. It's got a, a companion wine called Dial Tone as well. Uh, Clarice Pinot Noir. I brought something that had a little bit of age on it from 2018 because my goal here is to kind of make wines that are meant to age. Mm -hmm. And then Beaumarchais, the uh, wine from Philippe Cambie that you mentioned. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I'm super excited. Um, you know, we'll get into it, but I remember your Siduri wines uh, back in the day when I was in California. And, um, you know, the, we, have, we have the busy signal in the glass right now. And I had your Clarice, and I was in a San Lucia Highlands, and they sent me a box. Anyway, I'm excited you're here. But um, first of all, man, I wish you guys could see his boots. His boots are rocking. He is from Texas. His boots are fucking dope. Um, so let's start at the beginning. Where are you from? I'm from Austin, Texas. I was okay. born and raised. My, I was the only adopted child of two older Southern Baptist parents. Okay, so that to me is crazy like you don't meet people it's like meeting somebody who's like from la like i you know like austin is such a amazing town uh but most people come you know i mean now it's become i mean what do you think of austin now I mean, yeah honestly my son lives in san antonio and i go back there more often just the traffic in austin to get through town the whole thing i, I still love parts of it but it's like, let me get in town and then let me walk around to the places I want to go. I don't love driving around like I used to. Yeah, yeah. No, I. Uh, it's, it's funny um, because I went to law school and there was this guy, Garth, who, who was from, from Texas. And he went to UT. I don't know if he was from Austin, but he went to UT. And I remember Garth telling me, this is like 1995. He's like, I know you're a New York guy, but you got to go to Austin. You're going to love it. And I didn't make it there until like 2015, and I was like, "Fuck! I wish I had come here." If I had went to Austin like in '96, I probably would have moved there because it was affordable. Yep. Like it was like, 
even even 2015, it was still relative. It, it still hadn't blown up. I think Google and Apple just started moving in. Yep. That, that changed a lot. Yeah. The other thing that changed way back in the day that people don't really talk about was Austin always had very strong neighborhoods, and there were great things about that, but they did not let Austin build um, east-west thoroughfares. So there is no good way to go east-west mm. in Austin unless you go way north or way south. And so consequently, I mean, it was great at the time. It preserved these neighborhoods. It screwed everything around now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so... You, you mentioned you were adopted. How many siblings did you have? I was at, I, my parents got me, so they were at, in the, at the time in their 40s, which was fairly late at that time to adopt. And they had tried for a while to have kids, mm -hmm. no luck, waited too long. Actually, my mom had a tubal pregnancy, and so her health was in question there for a little bit. Uh, they got a phone call one day saying, hey, we have a baby out of the blue. Can you come get him? We'll put him in foster care. And they're like, no way. You're putting him in foster care. We're getting over there this afternoon. They got him. I slept in a dresser drawer for the first night before they got anything. They didn't have kids clothes. They didn't have diapers. They didn't have anything. But um, I was at, I was I was definitely spoiled. Yeah. Um, and um what was it like growing up in Austin, Texas? Because we've, we've talked about this. We've, we, met, we alluded to like the traffic and the thoroughfares. Um, and I would love to hear what it was like growing up. So I lived on a little two block long dead end street and it was pretty bucolic. It was this situation where nobody drove down that street unless they were going down the street. I had uh, my best friend growing up, two best friends, Kevin Smith, lived about five houses one direction. Mary Louise lived about six houses the other direction. It was very, very easy, very simple at that time for me. It, it seemed kind of Wonder Years-ish in some ways. Uh, I, I loved it. My dad was involved in Texas governance and politics in some way. Uh, he was uh, very high up at Texas Parks and Wildlife and uh, eventually um, Texas Coastal and Marine Council. He ran that. And that involved him with a lot of famous Texas politicians. There are pictures of me with John Connolly. There are a couple of pictures of me with LBJ growing up. He uh, he hated the, the actual act of politics in some <laughs> ways. There were very few politicians that, that he loved. But uh, we were, I was involved. I was eight years old, 1972, and I'm out campaigning for George McGovern. That's, that's, that's incredible. I think, um, wow. <clears throat> I, I love pe meeting people. This is what I love about this podcast, meeting people and, and hearing their story. Like, like, you know, your dad worked with LBJ. Like, <laughs> yep. So my dad was a lifelong Southern Democrat that voted for Barry Goldwater because he got to know LBJ so well. And what pushed him over the edge was in 1961 or 62, there was um, a Texas Parks and Wildlife agent, and he was out and he saw a limousine with a deer tied to the top of it out of season. It wasn't deer season. And so he pulls over and it's the vice president, LBJ, at the time. The guy writes a ticket to LBJ, does his job. And uh, my dad was like, I knew LBJ was going to get out of the ticket. Politicians get out of tickets oh, all no the time. <laughs> but LBJ made sure that that guy was fired yeah. as well. And that was where he was like, and the guy had a wife and I don't know, Vengeful. a couple of kids. Like no reason. Like he was doing his job. Like he, right. you, you're not going to, it's fine. You're not going to pay the ticket. It's fine. But you're going to fire, like fire him for doing his job. Yeah. That's bullshit. Yeah. And so that's where my dad was like, I can't, I cannot vote for this guy. 
But and, but that's like kind of consistent with the stories of like he was a power to like he'd like make a, he'd taken a shit and he's like you, you got to sit there and brief him and smell yeah. his shit like he was like a, it, he was I but I, I think he's a fascinating individual as well because he also then brought electricity to rural areas people that didn't have electricity he took care of the poor in ways and so I just find that he would be such a fascinating person to see all of these good things he did but then he got um so involved in the the Vietnam mess and uh, I mean it was and then it ended his presidency uh, on and on again. It, it, he's complicated. Yeah. Um, what was, oh, I was reading a book. Um, it's a small, it's a small, it's like a more like a booklet. It's on management by a guy named Peter Drucker, who's a business uh, writer, Harvard Business Review. And uh, he was, LBJ was in the, in the book because um, LBJ, he said, was the greatest parliamentarian. Like he could talk his ass off. Yeah. Like on the floor of Sydney, he was great. What happened was um, uh, Kennedy was a reader, so Kennedy had, had to have everything written out. So LBJ kept the same like press team, so that also kind of tanked his career because he wasn't. He just would have been better just spitballing, you know. But I I hear you. That would be a great that would be a great one to have a bottle of wine with and kind of unpack. But uh, so you're growing up in Austin, uh, and and I'm also thinking like I love. Um, Link letter. You wa you watching these oh, movies? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the Boyhood movie. Like. Oh yeah. Like like like. I know it wasn't set in Austin, but just like kind of like that Texas, that Texas life. <laughs> it it was. I mean, it was very much like that. You know, the there was a whole there was a creek, Shoal Creek, ran in my mm -hmm. backyard, and so you got to go down and play down the creek. Now up the creek a ways were some people that were born. I was born in '64. People that were born maybe five years before I was, they were all up there smoking pot. That's where you would find the old Playboys and Penthouse and all of that kind of thing. I, I was a little out of that as far as I kind of missed that. But like Mary Louise's brothers, they were up there doing that. Yeah, that's that's it's and and it's like yeah, that Days and Confused movie like that. Like when I think of Austin, I think of like Days and Confused. We would have so there was also like a. a empty vacant lot kind of across the street from us and it backed up to a, like a 7-Eleven but it wasn't a 7-Eleven some convenience store and it was like the second Tuesday of every month they would throw out the old Playboy spin houses the old porn <laughs> magazines all that. so we would go dumpster diving but then we couldn't bring them back into the house so we would dig a hole in the vacant lot and bury them but then we couldn't find them again and so our parents would be driving home and they'd be like what are those stupid kids digging for they're the treasure of some sort and we're like yeah yeah shit you didn't know what kind of treasure that was at that time <laughs> that's freaking awesome and like so here you go like you know you're 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 dumpster dime for porno max and um you were raised southern baptist yep uh strict southern baptist or? first drink was in college okay. um there's the old joke you know why do you um southern baptists not have sex standing up because it looks too much like dancing <laughs> that yes very strict southern baptist and definitely dealt with a lot of those um guilt feelings about porn about the whole thing growing up just about just normal human sexuality or normal human relationships you that was that was an issue yeah yeah no my mother uh mother's Jehovah's witness so i was raised Jehovah's witness so same thing man just like when i got to be 18 i was like oh i can do what i want to do it was just like but just just he said shame and guilt and yep 
and 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 then not having conversations you have because like this whole abstinence thing, you know, just like have a conversation. Like here's a condom. Like teach, teach your kids something. <laughs> yeah, no, I, it's definitely been some money spent on therapy for me. <laughs> So, um, what did your mother do? Was she a stay-at-home mom? She was a stay-at-home mom, but she also volunteered at the school. Okay. She would uh, work there. Prior to that, she was a nurse. Oh. Uh, she was a labor and delivery nurse and actually put my dad through college. He was going to become a doctor, mm. but then World War II broke out, and he ended up going away and coming back, and he was older at that point in time, and so he ended up becoming a marine biologist instead. So I mean, the biology route, but not yeah. all the way to the doctor. Yeah. Did he, you said, what, what, what was his function in the war? Uh, my dad was actually a medic on one of the ships in Shit. the Pacific. Yeah, he, he would tell all sorts of stories. When they were doing surgery on somebody, They a lot of times they would have to like shave them down below, straight blade razor kind of thing. <sighs> And he would be like, oh, my God, the ship is rocking back. He loved to just fuck with people. The ship's rocking back and forth. I'm not sure I can do this. And the guy would be freaking out. That's that's first of all, I mean, it's incredible like that he made it. I mean, that's just a blessing. He made it back. I mean, people and the fact that you have that you have, you know, a connection to that. Like, I think we're so far removed from so many things nowadays. But like that was I mean, what I have is all the letters he sent to my mom. Wow. He would send, she went to New York and was working in a hospital there, and they decided purposefully not to get married beforehand. Like a lot of people would get married mm -hmm. before. They decided no. I mean, they were very practical people in so many ways. No, we're not going to get married in case you don't come back. It doesn't really make any sense. Mm -hmm. So, um, But he would send her letters every single day. He would write her. But they would arrive in bunches. So she would go weeks without hearing from him, not knowing if he was alive or dead. And then all of a sudden, this whole packet of letters would show up. And I have... Um, I don't know that I have all of those, but I got a lot of those. That's freaking amazing. So your first thing was in college. Your parents didn't drink. There was no wine on the table. No, although my dad, before he got shipped out of World War II, he was at a place called Top of the Mark in San Francisco and apparently got thrown out for starting a fight at the bar. So I think my dad might have broken that, <laughs> that rule about drinking uh, then. So no, my parents did not drink. My first drink was screwdrivers and I got wasted in college and it took me years to drink orange juice. I mean, just regular orange juice. No, I get yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't drink um, tequila for a long time. Cause I, I got, I uh, <clears throat> got sick one time in college and like literally the smell, like for like, for like over a decade, just, I was just like curled on my stomach. Um, did you have, I know you had your friends on the street, but um, did your, parents have siblings who lived wide? Do you have any cousins or anything? Yeah. So I had, um, I mean, my parents definitely had siblings. I had a cousin who was one year older than I was. He was one of five, mm -hmm. lived up in Dallas and I was an only child. So we would, uh, during the summertime, his name's Tim, Tim would come down and spend a week with me. And he was like, oh my gosh, it's so quiet here. You get to sit on the floor. You get to have cereal for dinner sometimes. I would go back and stay with them. And I'm like, this is a nut house around here with six kids and games and blah, blah, blah. It's, it's, it was crazy. And so it was just very different experiences for both of us to go to each place. Mm, yeah, that's cool. That That's so funny that Austin, when we're, I don't even know what was in the intro, but like now Austin's become a huge city. Um, Dallas obviously was and it still is like 
like the mecca for business. I mean, Texas Instruments, yeah. all the big companies. But yeah, I could see for him, it's like, oh, this is going out to the country. And you're like, oh my God. And they would put us at the age of like 10, 11, 12 on buses or on trains just by ourselves, the two of us. Yeah. No, that's so. <laughs> I worked with this dude. He was a mentor. I love this guy. He's 80. So he's, he's older than both of us. But literally, his family's from from here, the East Coast. And his father's friend uh, lived like out west, like in Montana or something. And they were hunting or something over here on the East Coast. And Greg didn't know how to shoot. And he's like, yeah, tell me your kid up. They sent him by himself to Montana for the summer. He's 11 years old, man. Like, like, like. Shit, kids. There's no way I'd do that with my kids. I would not have put them on. No, it's it's crazy. I think Texas is probably safer than Florida. I, I can see anybody putting a kid alone on a Greyhound bus in Florida. No. Dude. That's crazy. Um, that's amazing. So where did you go to university? Did you go to UT? I went to Trinity in San Antonio. So okay. 70 miles away, close enough that uh, I could go home when laundry got bad, far mm -hmm. enough away that mom and dad weren't showing up all the time. All right. So... Um, San Antonio, this is probably before Riverwalk. San Antonio's got an like incredible food scene going on now. But but what was it like uh, going to school in San Antonio back in the day? So I did not have a car, for one thing, which mm -hmm. was interesting. And my parents were, I mean, my dad worked for the government, so he had a decent living, but not huge. Great retirement. And that yes. helped my mom out after he passed away. But uh, the school, I mean, it was kind of self I mean, self-enclosed in some ways. It's about 3,000 people. You lived on campus. You were actually forced to live on campus for the first three years, so a long time. Uh, we found places, bars to walk to. It was nice. Uh, San Antonio did have the river walk, but it was very nascent, very <laughs> kind of at the beginning. You saw uh, they would have Fiesta, a big festival down there. Uh, the Hyatt Regency would have this happy hour, which was expensive. And we only did it like twice a, a year. Mm -hmm. But it had free fajitas. And the drinks had real, like, alcohol. I mean, you know, the other dive bars we went to, places around the university, you don't really know. One drink would have tons of alcohol. The oh, yeah, they're, have they're no putting alcohol. water in the bottles and all yeah, that stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but down there, it would be like, okay, this is expensive, but shit, it's free fajitas and free nacho. This is great. So it it was a wonderful time. We had a blast. But since you've mentioned fajitas, tell people, as a true Texan, explain Tex-Mex cuisine. Yeah. So I, first off, bean, uh, Murray and I get into this all the time. I'm like, there are no beans in chili. Be oh, beans, yes. <laughs> it does no, that does not happen. Um, queso, not queso fundido, but queso and real queso is made out of Velveeta and you got Velveeta Rotel some jalapenos you're you're pretty well set um, it's a it's its own version of Mexican food and I don't really know that it's in any way shape or form true Mexican food although I, I mean we were talking you just came back from part of Mexico yeah. Mexico is very diverse I totally. mean you're you're going to get really different food if you're in the interior than if you're along the ocean I mean Mexico's got a huge coastline a huge percentage of it and so there's tons of seafood you don't see much seafood in Tex-Mex Tex-Mex is fajitas it's pretty much I mean it's beef driven I mean they they, it they, is. they do I mean they do obviously it's beef driven just because that part of the country. I mean, yeah, obviously there's chicken and there's there's pork, but like when I think of tech, it's it's beef driven. Um the Fla no beef flour tortillas. Flour also tortillas. Not, no, you're not doing corn. No. 
And but to your point, uh, I was watching some show on Netflix. Maybe it was maybe it was like the Taco Chronicles, and they, and and Tex Mex to Mexicans, it's real because they like they like, listen. This is which is where we live. There's people who've lived there for centuries, families been there for centuries, yeah. and so it's just a melding of the cultures. But it is it is and. Um, I don't really like beans in my chili either, man. So I need to go back to Texas. But sure. Yeah. I mean, like, um, you need to come out to our place. I'll cook chili for I'm, you. I'm coming How's out. That? Yeah. That ain't, that's, it's, uh, it's, uh, that's happening. Um, so you're at university. Um, you're, you're getting fajitas. I remember the first time I had fajitas. It just sort of cracks me up because that was such a Northeast. Like, oh my God, what's a fajita? And a plate sizzling. Um, what was your major? So I went in, I was actually going to be a minister when I started out. Wow. I, and that didn't last for too long. <laughs> I ended up um, moving, I had a professor who's now actually a really good customer, Nadine at Pomona, but he was a French history professor. Actually, my two favorite professors, Char and Gary, were both French history professors history professors. I ended up studying um, history. I specialized in a comparative history of the French and American prison systems. So what is that? Basically, you watched Papillon and wrote your thesis? That's it. Yeah. No. <laughs> Why um, that? That's such a um, – wh- that's fascinating. I, yeah. I was going to go to grad school, and um, Gary Cates, the professor, was telling me, hey, if you write about Robespierre's role in the French Revolution, everything that could be written has been written. Mm-hmm. you got to find something different. And it turned out that at the time, the American prison systems were considered to be the best prisons in the world. They were a model – they did things that today might be considered cruel and unusual, but at the time, the goal was reformation. You, you wanted to um, – th- people were not locked away as much as punishment as they were locked away, and you were given a Bible to read, and you got one hour's break a day, and you were supposed to reflect on your crimes and end up when you got out. And there was an assumption you were going to be released. When you were released, you would then be a functioning member of society, having reflected and repented of your crimes. Uh, The French were fascinated by that. They thought, let's try this, but they were never able to implement it because of all the different changes in government. I mean, when we think of the French, we think of the guillotine, we think of these ultimate punishment type things. Oh, yeah. They banished people to islands. I was making fun of Papillon, but like like they they sent the guys to penal colonies. They had penal colonies. And he, I just remember, I, he was eating bugs. Like they, they would starve him, and they like, and we, and it's so funny because you're right. When we think of France, we think, we think of Burgundy and Bordeaux. We think of Champagne, and you know, and like, there's some pretty rough motherfuckers. Oh, there was some <laughs> horrific things that went on. Um, the, the guillotine was actually invented by a guy as a humane way of killing animals for food, which, I mean, it was quicker than what they did. Right. Otherwise, he was so. Um, like upset uh, he had abhorred the idea this was used to kill people that he changed his name and his entire family changed his name guillotine used to be a fairly common last name in france you can't find any guillotine family members anymore because uh, of how it was used it's like like i'm last name hussein or something yeah <laughs> you know what I mean? like um yeah but that that's i didn't see this is a i thought specifically it was a killing machine for people it makes sense. I mean, you know, cows, you know, that's that's crazy. But the guy would test it out in his apartment in <laughs> Paris on animals. And the people were like, the fuck is that noise? The animal screaming or whatever. But it, it was actually more humane oh, yeah. and, and faster than what was used otherwise. Oh, that's insane. Um, 
and fascinating. Um, it was, and you just went that route because you took a class with one of these professors, and you're like, I kind of like this guy. Yeah, and I thought the whole French history, the revolution, was really fascinating. They took um, as First off, I, I think a number of things that I still think about with revolutions, it's very rarely the poor come and take over that that doesn't it's usually the upper middle class overthrow the upper class that's true in the united states system you think about washington jefferson madison these people were adams they were well off i know i know it's a very interesting i i go back and forth when i see people marching i'm like you know that's historically has not been effective no uh probably um nicaragua came closer than just about anything else with the poor coming mm. up and uh, taking over um wow you're a smart guy but i know that <laughs> um because wine is just filled with smart people um and my opinion the world of wine i inhabit <laughs> there, <laughs> there are some really wonderful people that are drawn to and attracted to wine yeah uh, the, the other thing the french system did when they did it they changed everything they changed the calendar they developed a new religion they this was a revolution in all thought and idea not just a change in government which is often overlooked which is most often overlooked i love that um i'm talk a little bit about um this busy signal because this is a santa rita hills i lived in santa barbara it's great santa rita hills it's like um that's good juice. That's good real estate. It is. It's really good real estate down there and very unique in the world of California wine. So Busy Signal and Dial Tone are two wines that Murray and I came up with along with John Wagner. John Wagner, no relationship to Wagner's from Camus. Mm -hmm. uh, John owns a winery called Peak Ranch. Uh, he owns several vineyards, um, fairly decent amount of acreage. John Sebastiano is over 100 acres. Peak Ranch is in the 40 acres. He owns part of Sierra Madre, which is mm. a lot. So he's got close to 200 acres of land there. He um, sells grapes to, well, he uses some for his own winery, but then he sells to people like Saduri. That's how I met him. Uh, he sells to a number of Foxen, Paul Lotto, very, very high quality mm -hmm. wines. Mm -hmm. But every year he has extra grapes left over. And it was difficult because one year there was tons of demand for your grapes. The next year there's no demand. One year the prices are really high. The next year the price is low. He's like, Adam, this is no way to run a business. I'm like, well, John, let's come up with our own label and do something here. And I really wanted to do something that was reasonably priced. So we haven't quite gotten there in the in my story yet. But between a junior and senior year in college, I went out and spent a summer out in Northern California and would taste wine and thought that I knew something about wine because I like Mandavi White Zen better than Sutter Home White Zen. Well, you know, you got to start somewhere. You do. I discovered this one place that I loved to picnic, loved um, the the views, just everything. And the first red wine I ever fell in love with was 84 Rocchioli Pinot Noir. Mm. And, and still, Rocchioli to this day, you know, one of the great Pinot Noir producers. I look back on it, that 84 Rocchioli Pinot Noir was $12 a bottle. Which was time. probably expensive at that time. It was relatively expensive, yeah. certainly for California Pinot. Oh, my that God. Was an, that $12, if you did it for inflation, would be about $36 today. Yeah, it's not what Rocchioli costs today. No, it is not what <laughs> Rocchioli costs today. I contribute enough with Clarice, Beaumarchais, with Siduri, to some extent of enough $70, $80, $90 Pinots yep. out there. I think it's really important, and we're really lacking good quality $29, $39 
Pinots. I concur. And that is what we need to get people into wine mm -hmm. is to introduce them to things that are real to not fucked around. No adding of concentrate and on and on again. Yeah. Kind of. <laughs> um, that's what our goal is with these dial tone and busy signal wines. And, and I, if you're going to produce something like this for between, you know, 30 and $40, that's another thing too. Like most of the time in that range, you're looking, people are looking at a, a California designation. Yep. It's, not 100% Pinot Noir, you know. It's 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 got whatever. What is it? 70%. Whatever you have to yep. call it Pinot, and then and then you, and then chemicals they might put aside. There's some Syrah in there. You like you like you like no, this is too dark. You, you can you can start telling like, um, you know, and uh, that's incredible. So you brought it up. How did you end up going to California between your junior and senior years to start? How did how did how did the wine cuts? We were we how had does, to how does any guy move any place? It's a girl. Yeah, yeah. completely and totally it, right. It's, it's, it's no. one of those, it's, <laughs> you're going to ask a lot of questions in the next two hours. That's the most ridiculous one you're going to ask. People ask, "Is a girl, dude?" Come on. Uh -huh. <laughs> Yeah, I was dating a girl, and she got a job out in Walnut Creek, California. She it was a year older. She okay. graduated, and then I went to spend the summer out with her. My parents, Southern Baptist parents, were none too thrilled. I, can, I, I mean, first of all, you know, like they're having to deal with you just having a girlfriend, and then she's in California, and those hippies in the pot, and and, and you're to live with her? Yep. <laughs> no, it was a thing. No, I, I trust. I believe you. So, um I love that you so besides drinking Robert Mondavi White Zinfandel, um, what what uh, where were you tasting? Do you remember any of the wines? Because you said the Rocchioli, but did any? Yeah, no. Uh, we used to bring um, Saint Michel Riesling to Stern Grove to mm -hmm. uh, in the park. Uh, Falia Du Winery existed at the time. I think it still does as a label for Trinchero or mm -hmm. someone now, but it was actually at uh, uh, just north of Saint Lena. They had a Muscat that we loved. Uh, really was looking more at those fruit forward kind of wines. As, as, as that's that's the gateway, I think, into wine. Unless you're a family where you were putting your pinky in in Burgundy, at you know, and that's you're going to come in through the fruit door. Yeah, and I don't think that's a problem. And, and I, I mentioned earlier about wines that are, are uh, fucked around with a lot and people messing with that. I do think that in some ways the problem has become not that those wines exist, but that those wines are put forward as here's an example of what Pinot Noir is really exactly. like. Exactly. That's the problem. Yes. Right. It's, I mean, White Zinfandel was an entirely new category. Is there a problem with White Zin? No. White Zin brought a lot of people to wine and it was great. It saved some old vines. Argu Zin vineyards. I was say, arguably <clears throat> saved a lot of old vine because people were ripping shit out after Chesapeake Paris, planting Chardonnay and Cabernet Sauvignon, places that shouldn't have been planted. Yeah. I mean, and I mean, you know, Napa kind of screwed the pooch on one way i mean as far as terroir obviously a great but like pulling out all the stuff the italian immigrants brought all those you know the petite Syrah, the 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 sangiovese i mean they like in in favor i, I get it i love napa you know i love you but like come on man you guys ripped out like petite you know, charbono i mean just there was just stuff there oh yeah that's not there anymore and i forgot who said it but like if you look at who were some of the first settlers, where they were from, and you look at the climate, <clears throat> kind of Tuscany, man. It's kind of, yes, <laughs> you know, it should be other things. Um, so 
Is that when you kind of caught the wine bug? Do you came you came back after that year? Yeah, so I came back. I graduated. Uh, my parents were happy about that. Finally, I did something there that they were happy. I, I went through a period there where I was disappointing them. It seemed like. Did you grow your hair out? Was did, did, did you ever get that? I didn't go too far okay, as far okay. as the hair. Yeah, I, right. I did the cheesy, cheesy mustache, and I looked like like. A, a porn. I mean, the the only way I looked like a porn star was the <laughs> mustache, but uh, that was that was ugly. I did that. The um, I didn't get a tattoo. I didn't do any piercings. Still, I, that wasn't really big. I mean, I got a piercing. I'm four years younger than you, and I got a piercing when I was like 14. That was a big deal. Like it was, like people would make comments about your sexuality. I mean, it was not a lot of people getting ear pierced back, and no tattoos. Like it's crazy, no. right? No, I feel old now because I'm like, I'm like, man, these kids. I tell people face. this; I, it makes me feel old. At the time in college, um, ecstasy was legal in Texas, and it was a, a drug that was like twenty bucks. You would just take a pill at the club while you were out dancing it was and drinking. Legal, wow! Yeah. It, it, and you knew what you were getting. It made you want to safer. Yeah, it made you want to dance and play and fuck every hole in the wall that was there. <laughs> I mean, that was basically what ecstasy. The minute it became illegal, the price doubled and you had no idea if what you were getting was any good or not. Yeah, and I do know this. It was developed by, I think it was a German or Swiss person, biologist or whatever, who makes chemists. Or, and it was used in therapy. The original term for it was empathy because, like you said, it just brings your barriers down, makes you more empathetic, you know. Um, and then, uh, yeah, once you uh, make shit illegal, it gets, I mean, look at, why? Look what happened when we fucking did prohibition, sure. right? Like, don't do that. Um, so you graduated. I graduated. I was going to go to graduate school. I'd have been accepted to a couple of different places, but decided to take a year off and uh, spend some time taking classes at UT. Okay. Wasn't really sure. Uh, more French. So I can read French. I can read wine French now. Um, I can understand some French, but speaking it, I've never been good at that. So I'm like, I got to work on this. And I ended up getting a job in a wine store while I was taking these classes at UT. And it was a great store. It was a great time in the world of wine, 85 and 86 Bordeaux, 84, 85, 86 California cabs. We brought in the wines of Bobby Ketcher, Terry Thies, Marco de Grazzi. And at one point in time, I'm talking to the people there and I'm like, you know, California's got some good Pinot Noir. And they're like, oh, bullshit, California doesn't have any good Pinot Noir. I'm like, no, there's this place called Rocchioli. They're like, no, we've never heard of it. No, it doesn't exist. It's not. So it turned out that Rocchioli was available a little bit in Texas. Um, so we brought some in. We tasted it. The people at the store that were running the store were like, oh, my gosh, this is actually really good Pinot Noir. So they asked me, Adam, can we send you out to California? Can you find more people like this? So they sent me out to California. Uh, on a trip to go and see the Rocchioli, see what we could get. We ended up getting Rocchioli Reserve into the state of Texas. We were the only place, I think, that got that. Uh, Tom Rocchioli is telling me, go down the street. There are these guys, Bert and Ed. Yeah. They get some of my fruit. <laughs> so go and get William Selium into Texas, got El Molino into Texas. It, it, I became, we became this Pinot store, and I became the guy that was, because of that one summer, Wow, that Pinot Noir door opened for me. So you uh, you met Ed and Bert. I did. So what was? Uh, I'm sure you had some more experience because you became a wine but What was it like that first meeting? Like uh, Ed was like, no, go away. I mean, Ed, <laughs> he really was more of the bookkeeping yeah. into things, uh, and Bert was like, 
don't worry about him. Come on, we'll do a little tasting. And then he pulled barrel samples for me, opened a couple of bottles. Uh, he was much more accommodating, and Ed was definitely more stand And I don't know that I really blame Ed. I mean, they were starting to become very popular. They had more people interested in their wine, and people would just show up and drive up. I'm sure you you needed a gatekeeper to yeah. some extent. Yeah, but, yeah. but because Tom Rocchioli had kind of opened the door for me, Bert was very accommodating. Nice. I just think, I think it was, um, cause I came in wine business late nineties, but like I said, you just came in really at a really, by, by the time I was in, I mean, everything was cult status. Yeah, Williamson was cult status by the time. Um, but just the, the discovery of, 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 I mean, you, you brought, iconic wines into the state of texas um i took 85 chateau margot on a blind date one time because even the first gross were kind of affordable i'd been set up for a little no, while I know. and i took 85 chateau margot on a date and i ended up going out with that girl Susie for a year and every time we'd go out to dinner i'd bring a nice bottle of wine and she'd be like oh this is george de la Tour. this is a nice wine but it doesn't quite taste like that 85 Chateau Margot did. I'm like, no shit, Susie. I was trying to get you then. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> That's, wow, you set a pretty high bar. That's so funny. Um, and how long did you work at Austin Wine and Spirits? Uh, about three years. Ended up becoming president of the company, kind of running the three stores. Some of that was... Uh, just a position they needed to move somebody in one of the owners uh was got an offer that was too good for him to pass up in wholesale working uh, in the wholesale end of things he couldn't do that and own the store mm -hmm. at the same time so he technically kind of got bought out mm -hmm. there was a lot of under the table shit that was going on there but it's like we need a president uh, let's do adam he works hard he's <laughs> decent enough so they gave me that that title <laughs> All right, so um, you uh, had been going back and forth to fine wines. You're the president. Um, when or at what point did you decide to, you know what, I'm going to, I'm moving to California? Yeah, so uh, after visiting out there, I always had in my mind, hey, I'm going to head out there at some point. I ended up moving, uh, I got in. I left because of some conflicts from between the owners. Okay. And so I left. I mean, one was a doctor, one was a lawyer. They would. Oh, I, that, oh yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> everybody, everybody thinks they're smart each other. <laughs> well, the other problem was I would get five cases of William Sullivan Rocchioli Vineyard Pinot Noir. Um, the doctor would want two cases for him and his friends. The lawyer would want two cases for him and his friends. I'd be like, the fuck! I busted my ass for all of this, and right. would get nothing out of it. And 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 now I only have six bottles to sell. Yes, yeah. <laughs> no, it was it was crazy. Because I'm taking six, right? <laughs> exactly. Well, I, I had to get paid somehow no, for my I work. Know, yeah. I know. <laughs> Uh, so I got into wine wholesale. I was horrible. I was absolutely awful. I'm not. I, I, I'm, I'm never really good. I wasn't good at that either. I'm not. I just it doesn't for me. There's retail. I'm. I get to curate. Once you do wholesale, and I love all my wholesale friends, have been on, but like that's your book, right? And like you have to put blinders on. I know they drink out, but like you, you don't. You know, for me, I need more freedom. I like to explore. I, I, I that I also found that there's a level of rejection that occurs that doesn't occur when you are working retail. When you work retail, everybody that comes in the door wants You're to the buy. Expert, right? Like, yes. You, you, when you were wholesale, it's like get the fuck out of the store. Like literally, when I worked. 
when I worked uh, in Acker in New York, like M- Michael didn't cable. He didn't. He didn't see. They fucking winemaker in town. Get the fuck out. He didn't care. Like yep. don't like it. There's. It, like you said, resiliency of those of those people because there's no respect for, uh, for the for the uh, salesperson on one level. No, I, I actually think also one of the problems is salespeople are tasked in many cases with collections as yes. well, and they have to go into a store where their job as a salesperson should be saying yes all the time. You know, can I get yeah. five cases of this? this? Yes. yes, yes, yes. I mean, that should always be what they are. Not able like to- it's thirty five days past due. Right. I need to buy some wine. No. I mean, right. that's what they have to say. We right. got to get a check right. from you. Yeah. That's putting wholesale people, I think, in a really, really bad position. Yeah. Yeah. So you did, you did try it. I tried it, but I didn't do well. Um, I was calling on Neiman Marcus department stores in Dallas and got offered. They needed a new wine buyer. And so I got offered oh. a job as the buyer at Neiman Marcus. And that's where I met my ex-wife, Diana, who was working in the food, um, the Epicure department there. Oh, my goodness. Okay, you know what? This is probably uh, time to take a, a quick break. So we'll take a quick break, and we're going to talk more uh, with Adam about uh, his ex-wife, because I know you did some wine things with her, um, and, uh, and and everything he's done uh, since he moved to California. So we'll be right back. Okay, we're back. So... I didn't even know Neiman Marcus had like a wine department, man. Six of the stores had wine departments. Yeah. Yeah. I, is um, and like, was this like, was it like one of the drive up the valet? I would, and Dallas, it had to be kind of like a schmancy store, right? Yeah, it was. I mean, you could get pretty much anything you wanted. I remember a customer. I think he's still around. I talked to somebody who knows him, Lang Reed, who came to me, and he was like. You know, I know Bordeaux. I know Bordeaux. I, Adam, I hear 88 and 89. Burgundies are out in 90s. I hear they're really good. Have Have you tried many of them? I'm like, yeah, I mean, I've tried quite a few. They're good. He's like, put together, say, like $40,000 worth for me. And you would have things like that right. that would just happen out of the blue. <laughs> it was It was crazy. But it was, and I mean, $40,000 back then. I mean, nowadays, it's not even yeah, a case. I mean, it's I, not I, a case of DRC. That's what I'm saying. You're not even getting a case. But back then, that's like, that's substantial. Yeah, it really was. And we were able to do amazing tastings, amazing things, uh, and really introduce people to some fantastic wines at that time. I remember one of the great lessons I learned was people came to me with the 1989 vintage of wines. And 89 was a tough year in California. A lot of rain, Mm -hmm. a lot of things did not go right. Um, Jim Clendenin came to me with some Albon Clement Pinot. And I was like, my God, Jim, this this is great. This is what, tell me about it. He's like, well, everybody judges California vintage by what happens up north. And Santa Barbara, completely different. We didn't have the rain. We didn't have those issues. Mm-hmm. That was a great lesson that I learned at that time. Mm-hmm. Rest in peace, Jim. An uh, incredible uh, ambassador for California wine and, and particularly Santa Barbara County and very, it gets over you, but very Burgundian style Pinot Noirs and Chardonnay and yep. Pinot Blanc. And then he was working on the Nebbiola, some Italian stuff. Great winemaker, great guy. Um, what do we have in the glass now? Because it's completely different. Yes, as it should be. So this is the 2018 vintage of Clary's Gary's Vineyard Pinot Noir. Uh, I love the 18 vintage. 18 is 
a handful of vintages. So this will be my 30th year coming up now. Mm. Um, 18 is, in my mind, one of the top five vintages that I've had. Mm. 95, 99, 05, and 18. So really, I guess top four. Maybe I, I like 19 a lot, too. 19 has come around. But it's just long, cool growing season. There were no uh, major heat spikes. It allowed things to ripen very slowly. And... Santa Lucia Highlands, um, talk about that AVA because, you know, I think Pioneers on then at Monterey, mm -hmm. you had Calera Jensen, you had Shalom, um, and why are you like what, like, like the Santa Barbara's complete, I mean, obviously, but this is, and this is older, but like really darker and denser yeah so a couple of things san lucia highlands i think is probably the least great the least known great pinot noir growing region in california it is it's because there's no real tourist areas i mean it's you're an hour away from big sur and carmel that type of thing no so, hotels no not a, there's one place in soledad that used to be part of the best western association and it got kicked out of the best i mean th that's like the nicest place to stay and unless you get into salinas and then you got a couple of best westerns that are not bad but yeah. that's that's it yeah. Great Mexican food, but no other places to eat, yeah. no anything. When I, that's the, so the Central Coast, Santa Barbara is the first place I visited. It, and then the intention of that trip back in 99 was to go visit Gary Pisoni. And like, I think about, like we went to like this little country store and I think he got some quail, but that was it. And then we, we like, there's no restaurant. Like we went up to the vineyard which he was not even complete, but he had a kitchen up there and, and Oh yeah. And his and his and his mother had shot a buck a deer and so we had venison steaks and quail and, and his peanut and he wasn't even making wine, he was just selling all his fruit. Sure. But but you know, to, and he grew up there, his families were farmers, so he knew he knew that it was rich land. But like yeah, I think you're right. Like we think of you think of you think of Santa Barbara, you think of you think of Santa Rita Hills, right? Particularly now because shout out to my man Brian Babcock, but I think this new generation knows Domaine de la Cote. They know Raj Pars. Yep. Right? You know what I mean? People would make a winer and shout out Raj good stuff. But um and then you have, you know, you had Carneros Pinot Noir, right? And then you have Sonoma Coast. And you have Russian River Valley, which all wonderful, but like, yeah, like people to unless Unless you're really a wine geek, you don't you don't you don't you know you don't really know about Sandy Childs. No, you don't. And in some ways, I think it's everything that people say they want. They say they want people who are really tied to the land, that are farming families, that mm -hmm. that they um, they live that way. And there's I, I think some real truth that people want that. But I think also when it comes down to it, they also want to be able to go stay at Meadowood mm -hmm. or Alberge and they want to have a, a at least a one star. I mean, God forbid. No, you, you know, it's all we only have a one star. Oh, shit. Okay. I guess we'll make it work. Uh, they want some weird combination of the two. Uh, the San Lucia Highlands doesn't have so many of those other things, but they do have people who have lived there for generations who know the land. And that's, um, that's special. Yeah. That was Gary's uh, story. He was like, it's like when, first of all, this is 99. He's like, why are you coming to visit me? I'm like, he's like, I'm just a farmer. And then he told us like his family was like one of six 
original families that went out to that yep. area to plant. So like I said, it's 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 generations uh you know his sons are running so so we got into this area because of gary pizzoni as well it was 1997 i mean we're jumping ahead a little bit here but I, we had started Siduri, very small 107 cases diana and myself mm-hmm. and we get a phone call a message on the answer machine from gary pizzoni in early 1997 saying that he had tried some of the wine that we got and there was a place called the cheese shop it still exists great place in carmel gary had tried a couple of the wines there um Sidiri wines and he wanted us to come down and get fruit to make that's what he did he went looking for producers he did yeah he really believed that at the time um places in the north bay and napa and sonoma got pressed much easier than they did in the central coast so the way to really grow his vineyards reputation was to sell to people up there so he invited us to come down and we come down and we um the directions are, you know, can you take the main Gonzalez oh, exit, Dude, you get to the house <laughs> and you turn by the asparagus field yep, and the second cauliflower you turn and, and we come totally. uh, up to his um, uh, up to his barn where he's got homemade wine in the barn. Yeah, and, and you smell like, the weed too. Oh, yeah. yeah <laughs> just oh, yeah. Weed. Well, we end up tasting like 20 barrels of his homemade wine, um, get a little buzz. We're like, Gary, we got to go see the vineyard. He's like, Yeah, but uh, I want you to go see the cellar. So we're down in the cellar, and um, he's depleted a lot of the cellar, but at the time it had um, amazing wines on the walls, stuff that you would be like, Okay, this is a collector, 75 and 76 German wines. So yeah, that's where he had. He pulled a 76 Riesling. Yeah. Like, uh, like, he was a serious wine guy. I mean, he is, but like. But there were empty boxes, or so we thought they were empty of Bordeaux on the ground, and it turned out they weren't empty. They were full. And um, Diana sees a case of 70 Opryon, and she was like, 1970 was my birth year. Um, you know, Gary, if you ever want to sell one bottle, maybe we could pay you for the retail price. And he looked at her and looked down at the case and looked back at her and said, 1970 was your birth year? Well, happy fucking birthday. We're having a birthday party today. <laughs> pops open the case, pops open the bottle. We end up drinking that and four bottles of his homemade wine before we even seen the vineyard. And we're doing the, Gary, we love you. You're going to be the best grape grower ever, kind of. I mean, again, we've truly agreed that we're going to buy these grapes and we haven't even seen the vineyard. Yeah, yeah. Freaking, that's that's how he that's how he got down. That is totally how he got down. So, um, so you had met Diane. Uh, you guys are working at um, at Neiman's. Neiman's, I would say, Norsom Neiman's. And um, how did you convince her to move out to California? With? Uh, got her to sneak off one time away from. She was living with her parents. I got her to sneak off one time. She made up a, an excuse that she was going to go um, hang out with a friend, and we ran out to California over a weekend. Okay, and she loved it and thought it was fantastic, and decided that yeah, let's let's go ahead and give it a shot let's move out there i moved out a few months before she did okay and we we um kind of got set up out there working in tasting rooms yeah, i was gonna say what what was your kind of like your jobs i worked I, I first job was uh first winery job i worked at sterling i oh, wow. was doing tour guide kind of thing pouring white merlot for the masses at sterling white i remember uh, white merlot uh, yeah no that was the thing but i became known as the gilligan of the tour staff because i didn't want to be pouring white merlot so i would give the three hour tour because <laughs> it's like let me take these VIPs on this longer tour kind of thing. So that's where I really found myself um, kind of the beginning. I left there. I ended up going to Lambert Bridge 
winery and was doing tasting room there. Diana also came to work at Lambert Bridge. And they were just reopening after a bankruptcy and sale. Mm. We decided, let's try making a little bit of wine. Okay. And I honestly had thought not so much about making wine. I'd started a wine newsletter. I like to write. Okay. And I was going to write about wine. But I also thought that if I was truly going to write knowledgeably about wine, I should try making a little bit of wine that year. So we decided to try to make Pinot Noir because of the love for Pinot that I had. And we put an ad in something called Wine Country Classifieds and went and had four people tell us, um, yeah, we'll sell you some grapes. We really wanted to buy by the acre. And it's something that I still do to this day. I buy my own set, like 12 rows, 14 Mm -hmm. rows, and then I want to be involved in the farming. Mm -hmm. And that allows the quality, I think, that you want. Uh, places like Gary's Vineyard, like this wine we're trying, I, I would not tell you. I mean, Mark uh, Pizzoni, Gary Francioni are immaculate, incredible mm-hmm. farmers. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only thing I do there that's different is what makes this wine special to be Clarice. It's not like it makes it better than other people's sure. wines, but it gives it your own particular touch. The, yeah. the one thing I tell people, the best analogy I've come up with is when you buy by the acre and you have your own section, it's kind of like having your own apartment. Mm. You can take all of your bedroom furniture and put it in the kitchen if you want. Stupid, but you can do that. What you can't do is you can't put holes in the wall. Right. And if you put holes in the wall and damage it. So I can ask Mark and Gary to remove all the leaves. Yep. That would be a really stupid thing, right. but they would do it. But I can't ask them to do anything that's going to damage the vines longer term. Yeah, that makes sense. And just while we're on the Clarice, why'd you go screw cap? Because I believe it's the best closure. I've done years of trials, and I did that at Siduri. At one point in time, uh, Jim Lobby was a good friend when he Mm -hmm. worked at The Spectator, still a friend, uh, and he would send me all the numbers every year. At one point in time, there were 9% of the bottles opened by Wine Spectator in their nap office were ruined by cork. That's ridiculously Mm -hmm. high. I don't know what other business would survive if 9% of things were ruined. The the case... uh, was made and I did these trials for three years and then ultimately for seven years uh, on the single vineyard wines that we made at Siduri. And after seven years of trials, I'm like, this is the way to go. There's a liner called Serenex that allows the wine. It replicates the best cork as far as oxygen ingress goes. I I really do think it's the right way to go. But I will tell you that a hundred years from now, you and I probably aren't going to be sitting around drinking wine. But what's happened is screw caps have made cork better. The cork producers have gotten yep, their act that, together. A yep. hundred years from now, maybe it won't be cork or screw cap. Maybe there'll be something we haven't thought of. But I hope we never go back to the days where only one closure exists because people get lazy then. Yeah. No, 100%. Um, so this, this Rose Vineyard Pinot... Um, where is that vineyard located? Rose is in Anderson Valley. Oh, it's, I love, and that's another still underrated Pinot Noir region. Yeah, very much. Oh. Anderson Valley is, I actually think Anderson Valley is one of those areas where about half the people up there want tourists, and about half the people that live up there don't want people I, coming up. Totally. I mean, it's in that Emerald Triangle. Yes. So, yeah. So, um, but I remember, um, well, first of all, for... I have listeners of all, I guess I have some listeners. I hope I do. Um, but, you know, Louis Roderer, Cristal, 
that's where they went to. Yep, that's where they went because. Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, and Chardonnay grow very well. And, you know, and but then you have old school OGs like Navarro. Yeah. So this was right across the street from Handley Winery, okay. mm -hmm. kind of at the deep end. There, found a guy named Vernon Rose. The winery actually was called Christine Woods at the time, but Vernon Rose um, agreed to sell us one acre's worth of grapes, and we would go up there and do the work in the vineyard, the shoot thinning, mm. the leaf pulling, all of the stuff. How did you learn how to do that? reading books and listening to people because there was no youtube back then there was no youtube there was nothing to, i couldn't google anything no, back then. no one ever, like and there was not even really cell phones there were car phones it was in your car oh yeah yeah and i <laughs> i didn't have one of those not a chance in the world no i i mean when you went up there we would camp at hindi woods camp mm. and then go over and work in the vineyard do the work that was necessary it was a real learning experience, but Diana grew up on a farm. She okay. definitely saw things where, like with roses, you go through and you remove some and the remaining roses do better. And that uh, that's different. That's one of the problems in San Lucia Highlands is a lot of the farming mentality there are farmers who that's not the Broccoli, way it works. asparagus. Right. Yeah, asparagus, you don't do better if you take some asparagus mm -hmm. out. These are so conscious. It's really my pee really smells it's, like asparagus. Yes, yes. They must have uh, green harvested or cut back their yields. Yeah. Do you know if it's true? I've heard this, that everybody's pee smells like asparagus, but only certain people can smell it. Uh, fact check that one for us, everybody. Yeah. I'd love to hear about it. I Probably. <laughs> uh, I just, I, I heard it and I'm like, eh, that's kind of interesting. That is I, a, I mean, that, that is interesting. Uh, so that we we listen to people. That's one of the things is I've gotten older and I'm 30 years in this and that I'm trying to work on. It's one of my resolutions right now is I went through a period there where I listened a lot and talked very little. That's how you learned. And mm -hmm. people like Tom Rocchioli, uh, Burt Williams, these people were willing to share information, Josh Jensen. Uh, and now that I've done this for a long time, I think I might spend too much time talking and not enough time listening. And so I'm trying to do better at that. I don't know, man. 30 years in, I think it's a good time to be talking. I think you've, I mean, uh, let's go back to this vineyard. So you 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 make it end up making 107 cases. Did you send it to Parker or did Parker find it? We were working at Lambert Bridge and a fax came in and the fax said, uh, Robert Parker is out at Meadowood, staying at Meadowood. He's out for a Zap event. He's going to be reviewing Zins, but he's also looking for other wines. People can drop off the wines for him at Meadowood. And we started drinking with some customers that day. And then that happens in the wine business. Yes. We went home and started drinking some more. <laughs> And we said, wow, Parker's going to be drinking all these Zins. I, I think our Pinot would seem really refreshing. Uh, let's go get a sample. So we drove up to Lambert Bridge, pulled a sample out of the four and a half barrels, um, hand corked it, put an Avery white label on it, along with a handwritten note, went, left it with the concierge at Meadowood, stopped at um, a restaurant that used to exist called Trilogy, had some more wine, got home. Um, probably shouldn't say this, but we had always also stop at the gas station in Calistoga. And it was like two beers over back into Santa Rosa. Basically, you take that road over and um, wake up the next morning, had one of those kind of fuzzy. What did we do last night? And I was like, oh, shit, we took a sample to Parker. <laughs> 
So I got on the phone, called the concierge, very polite as they always are at Meadowood, and I asked for the wine back, and he's like, I'm so sorry, Mr. Parker got up early this morning and already got the wine. And Diana couldn't hear that end of the conversation, so I'm like, okay, thank you very much. I hung up, and she's like, what did he say? And I remember right off, I was like, he said we're fucked. <laughs> that was... <laughs> But what I love is like drinking, 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 drinking. Let's do this. Yeah. Drinking, drinking, drinking. I need that bottle back, bro. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and completely. then you tried to take it back. We did. <laughs> Who knows what would have happened? I know. Been successful. I know. I mean, fuck. So, and like you mentioned, it was faxes. There's no cell phones. This reminds me, this, it's, I called information. I met Gary Pisoni. I called information. He was. My buddy Cliff had pulled some wines from the Central Coast. He we had a, we had a Keith Nichols. I don't know if you ever met. Oh Keith yeah, Nichols. Keith Nichols had a Pisoni. He did. He the first two people for, I saw, Joe Davis yep. and Keith Nichols. Yeah, and so Cliff had brought some back to New York because he went to UCSB. We had these Nichols Pinot Noir. I was working somewhere else, and and I was like, I was like, I was like, I was like, do you know about the? You know, I was working for this guy in Hope. I was like, do you know about these Pisoni vineyards? It's like. Supposedly he fucking smuggled the vines from DRC, the boat, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and, uh, and so I'm like, I was like, and I was bringing all these central coast wines to, to, uh, the sport spot in Jersey. I was working and he's like, let's go to this central coast classic thing. And I was like, let's go see Pisoni. That's when kids, I called information. I said, can I have the number for Pisoni, Gary Pisoni in Soledad, California, yeah. whatever. And I call and left an answering message on an answering machine let that one sit and he fucking called me back a couple days later yeah um so so parker taste your wine did he call you did he fax like we had a message about three weeks later on the uh, answering machine saying he tasted the wine thought it was terrific but he lost all the notes on it and could we fax those over to him which we did and about and then we spent all the time going through back issues of the wine advocate looking for terrific and what kind of number that meant mm -hmm. and that's when about six or seven weeks after that uh there was the wine advocate came out it was one of the top 10 pinos of the year he printed our phone number which was our home line mm -hmm. we didn't have, have a business line yep, yep. set up yet and people called and wanted to buy the wine and we sold it all direct amazing so what did you do? So that was 94. What, what, what did you, you had that row again, I guess, I hope for 95. Did you? So 95, we still had the Rose Vineyard. Uh, we got the general manager at Lambert Bridge had planted some land up in Oregon because his wife's family was up there. And to make his wife happy, now his ex-wife, but to make his wife happy at the time, he planted some land and he said, I loved what you did with Pinot. Would you be interested in making an Oregon Pinot? So we started making a Willamette Valley in 1995, Damn, and then man. we also called Gar Helenthal out on the Sonoma Coast to see if he had any fruit, and he didn't. Um, we'd heard about him through W.H. Smith, I think, was getting some Helenthal. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. but, uh, I remember that for him. Yeah. yeah. But he was like, no, but I think uh, my friends just down the road at Hirsch might have a little bit. And so- Shout uh, out to Jasmine. Yeah. Yeah. I saw pictures with yeah. Jasmine here not too long ago. But you worked with her dad, though. That's oh, yeah. 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 And so David yep. said uh, he had three quarters of an acre that he was willing to sell to okay. us. Okay. So we got that. So we then 95 was Hirsch, um, the Willamette Valley Pinot, and the uh, Rose Vineyard. And um, highly rated again? 
uh, did well. That was a great learning lesson that year. So it was a horrible, horrible year in Oregon. Okay. And we really had to um, do all sorts of things. I mean, bringing it down, it started fermenting on the way. Uh, it poured on it. Uh, so we ended up having to add yeast because we'd not done that before. I mean, when I say all sorts of stuff, it's really nothing in the world of winemaking. Yeah. But for <laughs> us, for us, we were like, no, we're not going to add yeast. We're never going to need to do this. We're not going to need to add acid. We're not going to, I mean, sulfur at the crush pad. No, we're not going to do any of this shit. Um, it turned out we had to do all of that shit. <laughs> and uh, we... Uh, the Hirsch was one of the best Pinots, I still think, when the 95 Hirsch that I, I've made. The, the Rose did very well. Mm -hmm. But that Hirsch Pinot, um, this is the year I learned a very important lesson. That Hirsch Pinot got an 87 in the Wine Spectator. The um, It did better from Parker, but it, 87 in the Spectator. The Oregon Pinot that we only thought was okay, we lowered the price by 70% on it. It got a 91 in the Wine Spectator. Sure. It was tied for the highest Rated. Pinot from that vintage in Oregon. And it's where you learn that, uh, for me, you can't base what, how you make wine on what the reviewers mm -hmm. give you. You are going to sometimes get better reviews than you deserve, and sometimes you're going to get worse reviews than you deserve. And, you, and at this point, still... DTC, direct-to-consumer? Direct-to-consumer, but we started having a couple of people that reached out about the wine. Debbie Zacharias, um, Debbie, who is now at um, Ferry Plaza Wine Merchant, but at the time was at a restaurant called Eos mm -hmm. in San Francisco, mm -hmm. so we got them a little. Um, the folks at the cheese shop, that, mm -hmm. that's how we got in with Pizzoni, and David Schildconnect. Uh, David, um, who's been a wine writer for many years, but he was actually running a place called The Party Source in Kentucky, <laughs> right across the river from Cincinnati, Ohio. Mm -hmm. And The Party Source had an amazing, amazing selection. And so we ended up doing a little bit of distribution at that point. Yeah. So <clears throat> lessons, you're learning lessons. Um, you're making wine uh, in you know, a different state different AVAs um, kind of walk through the the growth of Siduri. Yeah, so that put us at from 107 cases to about 275 cases. The next year, unfortunately, um, Vernon Rose ended up selling fruit to someone else because someone would take all his Chardonnay and uh, but really wanted his Pinot. So we were out. That's like there. a whole that's like a wholesale move. Like if you want a case of this, you got to take 200 cases of that. So that person was willing to that got it. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> it is a wholesale move. Uh, so 96, um, we played a little bit in Carneros. Didn't really work very well. But we still had Hirsch. We still had Oregon. 97, we got in with Pizzoni. And okay. that was kind of a, a beginning. But I, I, going back a little bit, Hirsch helped a lot. Mm -hmm. Hirsch just getting the fact that people were – that. David was willing to sell us grapes at all. That made a huge difference. Uh, people started paying attention to us in, in a real way as Hirsch was starting to become known then. David used to say that he wanted to sell to us because he wasn't sure how great his grapes really were. And if these two people who didn't know jack shit about making wine could actually make something decent from his grapes, then he knew his grapes were really good. That's awesome. Otherwise, maybe the winemakers were really good. Yeah, that's awesome because, you know, you know, you're a winemaker. I've come to know a lot of winemakers. 
And the best ones say it's 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 wise being advantage. My job's not to fuck it up. Yep. So so he's like, if these neophytes can do something, I got good shit. That's it. <laughs> yeah, that's it. It totally makes sense. Uh, Ninety seven was a big deal because we got large enough that we couldn't do custom crush anymore. So we ended up moving into our own facility. We fin we ninety seven. We barely made it through at custom crush, and then we were like, okay, time to move into a different place. Okay, that's. Pretty quick though, three years. I mean, there's people who, yeah. So we found a warehouse though. We found a warehouse and rented it, and then did custom crush for others. Smart. Um, so, like, with Saduri, how many different wines were you making? What was the total case production before before you went to Ching? Yeah. So we had gotten up to about depending on the year, 30,000 cases. Wow. Now, it can real easily go 25 to 35, just based on yields in a particular year. But average was going to be in that 30,000 case range. Uh, we were making all Pinot from Oregon all the way down to Santa Rita Hills. And depending on the year, because we didn't do vineyard designates every year. Okay. If, we, if a vineyard deserved it in a certain year, but in certain times it didn't deserve it, we wouldn't do that. Um, uh, 2008, people don't really remember this that much, but that was a smoke-tainted year. Mm. And so we didn't do a Hirsch Vineyard, Pinot Noir, in that year. We didn't do anything in Anderson Valley that year because they had issues. We, um, the most we ever did was something along the lines of like 35 different Pinots. Shit. Vineyard designates and then Appalachian blends. It was a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. Excel nightmare, I tell people. <laughs> because, you know, even I think... 35, I didn't realize you, I mean I didn't realize you got that high because like it's I think most of my Wyoming friends like around 9,000 cases 89,000 you can touch every barrel like you're not touching every barrel at that point no we had good staff yeah we tasted when we blended every single barrel it took the blending process was three weeks four weeks that we would go through and we would devote to let's taste all the barrels from the Pizzoni Vineyard, then all the barrels from the Gary's Vineyard, come up with vineyard designates, and then go from there. We were incredibly hands-on, but it was a lot of work. Yeah, shit. Um, when did you start Novi? Was that I started Novi in 1998 because we wow. had moved into our own facility. We were going to do custom crush for others. We needed a. And the year was a year where the yields were tiny and we're like, oh shit, we have now all of this space and this equipment and no wine to make in the place. So we found a place um, that would sell us some Syrah. Okay. And Novi was uh, Diana's maiden name. Yeah. So, I mean, you're known for Pinot Noir, but yeah, Novi Syrah, I just actually just saw a, um, I don't know, um, I just saw a... Um, I'm on every freaking email list. I'm sure. Um, was uh, Big Hammer. Big Hammer offered the, your 2015 Limerick Lane. Yeah. So we did Zen. We did Limerick yeah. Lane, Carlisle, Papera. Dude, these are fucking, dude. Oh, yeah. We got in. These are like, these are like the Hershes and the Pisonis of fucking Zinfandel, bro. Yeah. So that's a large part uh, due to Mike Officer, who's my best friend, who owns Carlisle. Um, and it's his birthday today. So happy birthday, Mike. Shout out, Mike. I love your wines. And uh, he was um, making, he was on our mailing list. I met Mike when he came to our front door to pick up his allocation of Siduri. 
and he was making homemade wine in his garage, but he kind of saw us. And I mean, I think he would have done it anyhow, but he was like, let's take this commercial. And they, they took Carlisle commercial a couple of years. The first vintage of Carlisle was made at Siduri. Oh my goodness. I love that. Oh my God. These vineyards, I mean, Papera, Limerick Lane, man. Um, quite what I love about those wines are those vineyards. You get all that beautiful Zinfandel fruit, but like very high toned. Yeah. The acid, credible harmony in the wines. Russian River's in. It yeah. gives you more of that acidity, more kind of that lifted fruit that mm -hmm. you're talking about. I think Russian River is an underrated place for Zen. I am so thankful for people like Mike who have kept uh, through their, their purchasing and kept Zen alive in the Russian River. It needs to stay alive. Yeah. Did, you were talking earlier about how Napa, and shout out, I mean, I love Napa in yep. its own way too, but how they have pulled out. They've gone down to largely a monoculture yep. of Cabernet. Right. Uh, I think Russian River could have gone to the, a Pinot. Uh, Pinot and Chard maybe, yep. Yep. but that, that would have been it. Yep. But thankfully, people like Mike have been around and have really kept Zen. And and I, I you know, this is, uh, throw these terms out, but like those Zins have their Pinot Ores, like, or like even like, uh, you know, the Martinelli, um, those Zins, they're, they're just um, yeah. high wire. William Selliam. William Selliam. That's some oh Zins, Oh, my too. God. Their Zins, outstanding. Um, so, Novi is more Rhone Zin stuff. You didn't do any Pinot or anything like that. Did no Pinot under that. Mm -hmm. um, played with Pinot Meunier as a still red wine. I love Pinot that. Meunier, man. I yeah. think, I think. When you find a good one, I've had a few. I love it. I just because, and also I just like off ride. I like when people like experiment. Like yeah, willing to, to to play around. Yeah, I I agree. I think it's fun to try these things. And interesting thing on Pinot Meunier was the worst Pinot Meuniers we made still tasted like pretty decent Pinot Noir. Mm -hmm. We just didn't capture what I really thought made Meunier special. But then one year we had this amazing wine. The the, the aromatics, the, the the tension to it, everything. Uh, for Pinot Meunier was never really fully able to replicate that. That's one of the frustrating things sometimes about <laughs> wine is where you stumble in something. I remember Andre Chelichev said that. I mean, I read it. I don't remember. I'm not that old. Murray would say I'm that old, but I am not that old. <laughs> but uh, the you know he made one great Pinot Noir in his life. I think it was 1946, mm -hmm. and, and he never knew how he did it and could never replicate it again. That's one of the more frustrating things about making wine sometimes. Yeah. Went back to the busy signal. It's banging. So I don't know if you saw the back label. I'm going to grab it yeah, real quick here. Yeah, man. But when we were talking earlier about faxes yep. and that kind of thing, this is kind of a retro old phone label. And I wrote this label in the shower when I came up with his whole phone series. I've, I've, I've been emailing Adam, and he is always on, man. He's always on. Anyway. So the back label says, beep, beep, beep. Do you remember that noise? That mm -hmm. was the sound you heard when you called someone and they were busy with someone else and couldn't take your call. These days, we seem to always take someone's call, respond to their text, or reply to their IG story. This wine is designed to take you away from all that, back to a simpler time when one thing commanded your attention. It's a show-stopping wine that tells you to put down your phone, ignore the outside world, and concentrate on what's in the glass in front of you. It's your busy signal. Activate it by pulling the cork. The world can wait. Dude, I actually read the back of the label, too, because I was... Um, and. That's how you do it. That what he does. That's how you do it. Like, and it's so true. It does harken back. I I tell people, I crack. I tell. I'm like, I'm like, you poor kids with social media. Like, you 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 you, you can't cheat on your girlfriend. Like, we were in college. Like, you, oh. it, like you're, you're like, 
knocking Tony Chino. But like literally, he was like, you would just you could just disappear back in the day. Yeah, you cannot disappear now. It's so true. No, and actually, there's a country song called "Breaking Up" was harder in the '90s, and about that one, it's like the other end of things. You get reminded all the time of your ex. Now, if you break up with him, you get to see exactly. It. Yeah, dude, listen, I love my wife. I'm not. My wife is not getting out of my life because I do not want to see her on social media with some other dude. No, it's not happening. And we met, and we, and so it's funny. We met in college, so that's like it's kind of crazy. Um, and then we reconnected, um, like in 2011, 2010. But like, yeah, no, like, no, 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 nope, nope. You are like people, nope. Yeah, busy signal. It's wine for it's wine for a certain generation. We're, we're, what are we? Gen X? We're Gen X, right? Yeah, we're Gen X. We are. <laughs> I, actually, I'm the last year of the baby boom, September twelfth, nineteen sixty four. So I'm I'm technically a baby boomer. Oh my god. I'm old. <laughs> no, I don't. I you're not old. Um, here's how I look. We'd have been in high school. I'd have been a freshman. You'd have been a senior. So you're not that old. So yeah. No, and honestly, I don't feel and think of myself as yeah. old. I do think I've got about ten or fifteen years left for all of these other kind of projects and yeah. stuff. Yeah. And at some point, then Clarice is what I'm going to do until I'm eighty something years old. Yep. I'll do that until I'm that age, and then I'll be like, all right, it's a great year. Time to walk out. I'll be done. Yeah. Um, so, speaking of Clarice, um, and it's just so, I think it's so amazing. I think you also came up in a time when there was just, where Pino just, uh, particularly on the Central Coast, was, was a th- I mean, because I've had Greg Brewer, same thing, came, same, yeah. came, came, and, um, but like, what's it like when you, uh, you get that call from a, and somebody's like, we're going to pay you millions of dollars, tens of millions yeah. of dollars. Like, 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 did you like, because did you come in with an exit plan? Like there's people who right now who like particularly if they came out of a different industry, they're like, I'm going to do wine and, and they're going to, and they're, they're trying to sell. They, yep. they, yeah. Did you have an exit strategy or just like, it was just a friend in? called me up, uh, another winery place I worked for, uh, for a little while. And they called me up and said, Adam, we have a lot of extra fruit this year. We're not really sure what to do with it. We're thinking about starting a different label. And instead of working with our national distributor, we would be interested in working with a local broker. Mm -hmm. Do you have any connections? Do you know any good local brokers? And I'm like, oh, here are the people I know, blah, blah, blah. I gave them some examples. And then I said this throwaway line. I said, if we were ever going to sell the winery and start over again, we would go with one of these three people. Great. Thanks, Adam. Hung up. Uh, like two days later, I get a phone call back from the guy. He said, you mentioned if you were ever to sell the winery, would you be interested in selling? And I'm like, you know, I, I don't know. We'd talk to anybody. Of course. I mean, it'd be silly not to talk. He's like, okay, I will have the owners give you a call. And the owners gave us a call and we started this idea of this process of perhaps selling. So mm-hmm. we're talking back and forth with this winery. And it turned out very quickly, it was apparent that we had never sold a winery before and they'd never bought a winery before. And so we didn't know what we were doing. We would send them over information that they didn't ask for. 
they would get information from us and just want it in a different format, mm-hmm. but saying they didn't have it, it was kind of a mess. They hired a guy to do, this is the wildest one, they hired a guy to do our business valuation, and we are on a cruise, and I'm just checking in, a wine cruise, and I'm checking the local news, and the headline on the paper is, local man disappears, and it turns out the guy that was doing our business valuation had a mental breakdown. They found Shut his, up. They, they found his car at... Uh, um, in Petaluma, uh, in a parking lot, along with all of his clothes in it, all of his work stuff. Apparently, he wandered naked. What, from... who, who's doing your evaluation? Martin Lawrence? <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I know. He wandered naked up to Healdsburg from Petaluma back down. They ultimately found him months later out in the Sacramento area. Jeez. He had wandered around. Uh, the the company that was doing the valuation was like we can still take his work and build on it. I'm like the shit you can't. No, you can't. The guy was crazy. If the valuation comes in really low, I'm not going to yeah, believe no it. Way. If it like, comes in really high, not right? So it, it's not. so. Then we brought in this guy named Mario Zapponi. Mario is well known for doing winery sales to help us with this. Harvest was coming along. I called it off. I said we're not going to sell. This is not going to happen. It's not worth it. I got to get to harvest. We didn't really need to. After harvest, Mario called us back up and said, Adam, I would like to show your winery to other people. And I'm like, "Uh, okay, do I have to do any more work? He's like, no, not at all, unless people are interested. And then if they're interested, you need to update your financials. What turned out like five or six people were interested. Mm. And so that including the original people, and that's where kind of this process and they all started talking and the, the, the value got a little bit higher and a little bit higher because there were more people involved. And then it became really difficult to say no. So we sell, we signed a letter of intent with Jackson family on um, Christmas Eve. Wow. And Merry Christmas. yeah, we were going to sell. And we both had 30-ish days, I think holidays were excluded somehow, but 30-ish days to pull out of it if we wanted to. And it was early January, and um, we were talking about it, and Diane and I were like, I just don't really know. I, I don't, you know, this is our baby. We're giving this up. This is hard. And then we got a phone call from our accountant who said, thanks for sending over the preliminary information. Y'all had a really great year last year. It looks like that in addition to all the estimated taxes you have paid, you're going to owe another $300,000. And we're like, oh, shit, we're selling that. (laughs) Bye-bye. Yeah. (laughs) And that was it. That was what changed it. So, no, no exit plan. I mean, the entrance plan was as planned out as the exit plan was planned out. (laughs) Let's make some wine. Yeah. But I mean, but at least you knew like uh, tidbit for all you buy by the acre, not by the ton. Yep. Yeah. No, that, that was definitely a large, large part of this whole thing. Um, so that went down in like 2015, right? Yep. And um, did you just exhale like in, in uh, you like said she's actually dying Jack's wife. So like she said, go on, take the money and run. Like what happened? Here? Well, well, so first off, we didn't exhale. Um, we... I remember when it was going to be coming out that we were going to be doing this. Um, The first thing I did was um, we went and signed the papers at the lawyer's office. We rushed over to the winery. We had an email drafted out. We sent it out to all of our mailing list members because we wanted them to know before the press Mm -hmm. came out on it. We thought it was important 
to do that. We sent letters to all of our distributors and told them ahead of time, we wanted to make sure that we did this right and that we treated the people who had taken care of us correctly. We were so busy that we did not um, really have a chance to celebrate. We found one bottle of Michigan sparkling wine uh, in the winery. And that's what, I mean, so it could have been this huge, you would think, you know, you were talking about rotor, yeah. let's open some crystal, yeah. let's where, go. Where's the crew? Where's uh-huh. the... No, no. <laughs> no. We found a Michigan sparkling wine, and that's what we drank to celebrate this as we were contacting our customers and responding to every one of the emails we got back wow. from them. So, no, we didn't, we did not stop in this. Um, really, a large part of it, uh, as far as the winery goes, was that the winery had started running us rather than sure. we were running the winery, sure. and we didn't care for that. Yep. Um, so then Diane and I went on for a couple of years. I was working for the winery, and, uh, continued on mm-hmm. doing that. She was at home. Um, she started her own winery called Flaunt, uh, which is sparkling wine, which is really great. Try it sometime. Yeah, to check get it you out. a bottle. Yeah. Um, very dry style, very low dosage. That's kind of what she believes in. California's got enough fruit. Yep. You don't really need mm-hmm. all of this extra sweetness. I think we realized that we had just kind of gone different directions mm-hmm. over the years. I've actually had some um, talks with the kids lately and stuff about this whole process. And I think... From my point of view, we made a short-term good decision, which was as Saduri was growing, she was going to stay at home and take care of the kids, and I was going to be on the road. Mm -hmm. A long-term bad decision. We grew apart. We went different directions. Um, I actually missed out on some great times with the kids. Yeah, it was easier for the kids just on a basic, you know, I'd let them eat a bunch of shit, and she would not, (laughs) or whatever. It was more consistent, but I do think that was a mistake as far as our relationship goes. Yeah. Um, And, you know, um, thanks for sharing that. Um, That's, you know. So um, you you were still working. So while you were still fulfilling, like, your contractual... So I had a non-compete. Jackson was like, okay, whatever. I wanted, I had a three-year non-compete in 2017. And really the three-year non-compete was not on production. It was on sales. Okay. So 2017 decided to do Clarice and start this project and do things differently than I had done before in some of these vineyards. Um, And, and uh, I talked to them, Jackson about it, and they were ultimately cool. They were like, how many cases you making? Four acres worth. Uh, so five, six hundred cases total. Selling it for ninety-five bucks. Well, oh, fuck, we don't care. Yeah. You know, that's good. Knock, that knock stuff out. Yeah, that doesn't hurt us. And if anything, that may help. It uh, highlights I, us because I mean, people don't realize like these these things happen. These sales happen, and like like you know, you're not making a wine anymore anyway. But but this is this is why I tell all your listeners get to know uh, get to know winemakers, get to know vineyards. Get to know importers because then you have some uh, guideposts, right? So, so yeah. I mean, I see that. I see a Sidori wine. I know you're not making, it, but I'm like, if, if I got that, and so I'm like, well, I'm still gonna go with that Sidori because I know the pedigree from where it came. And, and the current Sidori winemaker, Matt, um, I hired. I mean, I was part of the whole interview process. Who are you handing over these reins yep. to? Were you part of that? Matt was part of my COVID little group that we all hung out together. Uh, when Marie and I get married, Matt is performing the wedding ceremony. That's how close we are. I love that. That's a very California thing. Well, it's a very thing. Just go online, become a minister. Yep. Mar- yeah. I, I married, uh, I was the minister that performed Jeff Pizzoni's wedding with Bibiana. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Church, <laughs> Church of the Rose. My check cleared. That was it. <laughs> 
So um, what was the philosophy behind Clarice? Because you said you were going to do things differently, and it's smaller production again. What was the philosophy? Uh, so Clarice, my grandmother, taught me to cook, and she mm. taught me to cook in a crock pot. Uh, one person, uh, a good friend of ours, the late, great Josh Reynolds, yep. I was saying, you know, my grandmother grew up cooking in a crock pot and he wrote me and he's like, no, she didn't. The crock pot was invented sometime around World War II. The fucking guy. Yeah. Knew everything. <laughs> he did. And well, I, I looked it up and I'm like 1940. He was invented yeah, right yeah, around yeah. World War II. Like, fuck. Yeah. I, I remember my buddy Mark Adams from Ledge. He's like, Josh Reynolds. He's like, you could go. Um, mating habits of Tibetan mountain goats go, and Josh is spot on. Yeah, and I think in that group, that Facebook group, um, his daughter, someone put like, like someone put like, he was just an incredible man, and it wasn't know it all. Just like I don't like, how did he know all that shit? I, I don't know. I, it, it's nuts, uh, you know. So, um, so, but my grandmother taught me to cook in a crock pot. She apparently caught, thanks, according to Josh, yeah. she, she she had a slow cooker. She, yeah, yes, yes. She had a different big pot yeah. that she cooked very slowly in. Right. Um, but she used to say that if you put the meat, the potatoes, the uh, seasoning, the broth, the, all of that together, it would cook very slowly and would integrate together. If you added spices or seasoning at the end, it would really stand out. So I have decided that I'm going to go to these vineyards. So like at the Gary's Vineyard here, mm -hmm. I have two different sections, very different. I've dealt with these sections for years and have always picked them 10 days, two weeks apart. That's okay. Suduri. One's at the top of the vineyard. That's later. One's at the bottom. That's earlier. Um, and I've said, let me sample them together like they're one section. Let me bring all of that fruit in um, and make it in one tank as one wine. That means some of it's overripe, some of it's underripe. Mm -hmm. But if you cook it together, yeah. so to speak, it will make one integrated wine so it's really following her philosophy nice. it's kind of like the old zins you were talking about um field blends this is a purposeful field blend in some ways uh and then the idea was as these vineyards have gotten older i think we can do things with them differently i think we're getting riper stems so this is about 80 percent mm. whole cluster wow um no um very little destemming in that there are no additions on this wine other than sulfur. No, no acid, no um, yeast, no malolactic bacteria. It is made um, really in the vineyard. And then, I mean, hopefully then I don't have to do a lot in the winery. Sure. And I, I was saying like kind of when we started with the busy signal and immediately when I went to um, – you know the Clarice. Uh, it's so much more complex now. I know why. The flask, what you're doing, like like you're you're making a stew almost. You know. Yeah. Um, and so you're you're two years in this new project with 2017. <clears throat> How did you meet um, Philippe Gambi? So I had seen him at a couple of tastings and events before, but Mike Officer and I, to, again back to Mike, had decided to go over to Chateauneuf to taste the the 15, 16 vintages were great. 17 looked to be very good. We're like, let's head over there. We both love the wines of Chateauneuf. We're sitting there and we are at a dinner at Philippe's house mm. drinking, mm -hmm. drinking a good bit. And at one point, Philippe and from the 2016 vintage, Philippe had managed to make something like 17 wines that got 100 point ratings. Yeah, I mean, it was, it, it was insane. It was absolutely incredible. And at some point, he's like, Adam, you are so lucky. And I'm like, what the fuck? You, know, you just got 17 wines rated 100 points, and I'm lucky. What are you talking about? And he's like, I've always dreamed of making Pinot Noir. 
And, and I love that. Philippe could have said, I could be successful doing it. I could make great Pinots. I could do this. But no, I've always dreamed mm-hmm. of making Pinot. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it in France, it is very difficult for somebody to go into Burgundy. Yeah. Even somebody with Philippe's renown and all of right. that to go into Burgundy. The south of France is a completely different world mm-hmm. than there. And so a couple of days later, I sent him an email thanking him for the amazing dinner. And I brought up that line and said, Philippe, would you ever consider working with me on a Pinot Noir project? And I could swear within 20 minutes, he's like, how soon can we get grapes? We had that email. And so that's where Beaumarchais came about. This is not a wine that I really say I made. I shepherd it. I'm Mm -hmm. there. But Philippe is the one that said, here's how we're going to make it. And it's completely different than any Pinot. I will talk to my friends that make Pinot and tell them what we do. And they're like... No, you didn't. No, you don't make Pinot like that. That is 48 days on the skins. We had to find a different custom crush place to allow us to eat, take their tank up. For yeah, they were long like, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah, yeah. completely. 48 <laughs> days on the skin. We had to pay 50% more for custom crush fees just to make it. Uh, he has a, a proprietary enzyme that he uses that yep. helps extract everything. Yep. Um, he uses Gaia non-saccharomycin yeast at the very beginning to keep down. He has a pump around technique, not pump over technique. Pump different barrels, uh, just all sorts of unique, different things than um, I've ever seen before. Yeah, I mean, I didn't get to meet him in person. I met him on Zoom because I'm friends with the Katuris. Oh, yeah. And um, he did the auditette. Which, which which had been Artois because of Isabel Gassier's, you know. But yeah, basically Phil Mount, Phil farmed the fruit, but it was all Philippe's protocols. Yep. And I remember being on that Zoom, and one of the things for him that you have to have in a great Grenache or Chenin, it has to have anise. It has to has it has to have that licorice. This is such a Philippe wine. Yeah, it really is. I mean, like, 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 it just—it's just so much anise in this wine. It's crazy. He he was fascinating in so many ways. Like, so from a blending point of view, one of the things that he taught me, uh, his belief was that don't worry so much about the nose. I mean, you don't want it to be stinky, but the nose can change very much from day to day. When you're blending, blend for the mouthfeel, the texture Mm -hmm. of the wine. Do that, and the nose will come into its own at some point in time. And I think when people, if people saw this wine 15.5, there's people just going to write it off and dismiss it right away. No heat. It's 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 medium body. It's not even full body. I've had fuller body. Oh yeah, Pinos. You know, I don't know what the oak tree. I'm just not. I mean, but like hundred percent new oak on this. Can you believe that? I can't. I, it's no. Weird. I can't. No. I I had I I tasted it last night just to make sure it wasn't corked, and I knew, and I and I kind of recorked it. But like when I first t- it was like, oh my god, it was like the sweetest cherry lifesaver you mm-hmm. ever had. Just and now though, it's just. But I mean. What's it like? What was it like? I mean, that's, I mean, he was a legend. Um, and you guys, I guess you had a translator and you just kind of went back and forth. Is so Philippe's English was not bad. Um, it was not, if I caught him at the very beginning of the trip, he'd come over to the States three times a year. If I caught him at the very beginning of the trip, it was rough. Yeah. If I caught him after he'd been there for two weeks, yeah. it was pretty good. Yeah. Uh, and the same thing when I would go over there and um, hang with him. Sometimes it was great. Sometimes not so. I mean, we would work on it, but 
uh, he was fantastic. He was um, a friend in addition to a yeah. brilliant winemaker. Yeah. We became very, very close. I remember in 2020, um, February, he's over and we're going to blend. And I had been in Austin, Texas, seeing my mom. My mom was 97, almost 98 mm. in a nursing home, not doing very well. I spent time with her. Um, I land, um, and we're going to blend with Philippe the next day. I'm, I'm going to blend with Philippe the next day. I'm driving up from the airport, and I get notice that my mom just passed away. Mm. And I tell Philippe that, and he's like, go home. Go back to Texas. Don't worry about blending. I'm like, Philippe, it's okay. I mean, we. I was there with her. I said goodbye. said goodbye. Mm -hmm. It's all fine. Are you sure? This, that. Um, and so we did the blending. Had a fantastic um, blending session. I learned so much from him. And then a few months later, he calls me up. And that's a little unusual. We would text. I would call in the vineyard to show pictures yep. of things. And he calls me up, and he just asks how I'm doing. And I'm like, okay, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I'm trying to figure out what he really wants. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he wants something. What, what is it? And he's like, Adam, I have a question to ask you. Um, my mother, she lives several um, hours away. She fell and broke her arm. I know you took care of your mother from a distance for a long time. Can you give me some advice mm. on how to take care of a parent mm -hmm. as they get older when they live away? Mm -hmm. That's yeah. the relation. That's a relationship. That is, that's that, exactly. Yeah. It's not, that's not, it's, I've said this before. This is what, like, we've talked about wine, but I'm getting to know about your life. And this is a beverage that brings people together and, and what we can agree on and get to know people. And I've met the most amazing people over bottles of wine. And you can form real, I mean, like that is, that's such a thing, a deep thing that he's like, well, who do I know that has been through this yep. and that he thought to call you from, from France to speak with you. That has to make you feel good about your relationship. And uh, like I, I, I impact, impact, impact doesn't have to be huge impact. You can impact one person, yeah. you know? Yeah, it is. The other amazing thing, and this goes back to early on in my story, January 10th, so a, a month, my mom died on Valentine's Day, a month mm. and four days before my mom died, I wake up, I'd done a wine dinner down in the South Coast, South Bay, and um, I wake up and I have this message on my phone, and it's um, 23andMe, and I have a brother and sister from the family that I didn't know mm -hmm. that I had, and wow. they're reaching out to me then and came into my life a month before my mom passed away that is um that's freaking amazing uh that's really cool that's that's super cool and uh good for you man i i, that, I love that stuff yeah no it's it's wild and joe and deb and i have joe i always joke my, my brother he's been preparing for covid for so i didn't get to meet him for a long time though because of covid yep but he's been preparing for covid for the last decade or so he lives in a small town i <laughs> That lives outside of the small town yeah, yeah, right. in Johnson City. He's been doing that. But we get along just – Well, DNA is very powerful. People don't get – DNA is very powerful. DNA cuts across everything. Yeah. Everything. Um, yeah. DNA is – I have two daughters, two different mothers, and the three of us have some of the similar expressions, and they come from my mother. 
that's just DNA. Yeah. Like 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 my daughter lives in Ireland. This was the best. I remember her 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 grandmother said she's like, always used to think because uh, MJ stands for Marvin Johns. My mom called me because my father's mom. She's like she's like always used to think that was Kaya's. That's my daughter. That's Kaya's uh, Marvin Taller face. Actually, it's her Alma Taller face. Right? <laughs> like it wasn't sure. even from me, right? Sure. Like You know, and and that's so cool for you. Um, that's amazing. That's one of the great things about uh, Twenty Three and Me, and is like it has brought people together. And what's interesting, there was at that time period, like your age group, see, abortion was like illegal. So there's, I have a ton of friends who were adopted because yeah. that's what you did. I mean, like in that, you know, that, that 60s, early 70s, a ton of people I know who, like, it was common. Yeah. You know, because it was, and, and uh, I'm, I'm happy for that, that, that the universe saw foot that as, as the only person who was friends going away that you got connected to your, you know. Yeah. It is. It's pretty incredible. Yeah. And so we got we got a few minutes left. And so now you get you know. So Beaumarchais, unfortunately, um, obviously will not continue the way it has because Philippe has passed yep. on. Um, but then you met this young lady and Moray. Yep. And uh, and she has her own Pinot Noir project, which just got some really good scores. Actually, from you know. she's she's done incredibly well. I think she told, but how did you two meet? I want to hear your version. So she was um, hosting, during COVID, everything shut down. Right, she started miss. hosting Hall's Happy Hour. Yes. And I happened to be one of the least famous guests. They had all <laughs> the cast of Shit's Creek, all these I people. know, she was telling all the people, she, I was like, what? Yeah. And then she had me on with Mark Pizzoni and Gary Francione. And it turned out that she liked the Clarice model so much. She joined the wine club. She became the whole part of that. Um, it, I looked and it turned out that we lived a mile apart from each other. She was on the east side of the freeway. I was on the west side of the freeway. And I'm like, okay, I owe you some Clarice wine, and I owe you a thank you for having me on the show. Uh, and it was one of those periods where we kind of reopened with COVID. So yep. I'm like, um, let's go to this little wine bar in Windsor, which is closed down since. It had a shitty wine selection, absolutely horrible. So she's like, That's okay. probably why it's closed. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's now brewery or, or tap room. Yeah. Um, we uh, we went there and we exhaust the wine list, have four glasses each, and that was kind of it. And uh, um, she's doing this for a marketing opportunity uh, more than anything else. Yep. And um, I think it's done. You know, we had a good time. And I'm like, well, thanks so much. And she's like, well, you told me before you lived close by, which I had told her. I was like, we meet at my place. And she's like, no fucking way. Am I going to meet yeah, at your exactly. place? <laughs> and she's like, well, I do have a bottle of cab left over from my tasting earlier today in the car. Um, do you want to go back and, and drink the cab at your place? And I don't really drink a lot of cabs. It's not my favorite grape me by either. and large. And, um, but what did I say when she said, we go back to your place and drink yeah, cab? Yeah, 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 yeah of course. Let's, I love cab. Yes. Come on. I'm all in. <laughs> <laughs> so we went back and drank the cab and some other bottles at my place. Yep. And that was, and we, the big thing really and truly is we just didn't want to stop talking. I got we it. I wanted love that. to talk to each other. Yeah. That's amazing. And so, yeah, she's making incredible Pinot Noirs and, and, uh, she has that blend. She, uh, she does uh, the stray dogs, the stray dogs and the stray cats. I can't, I, aim I haven't had my muscadel yet. Yep. Uh, yeah. But, and you uh, got to get the Zen when she gets yeah, the exactly. bottle. I, I can't she's wait. Got a Zen. Yeah. 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 Old vines. Old vi I mean, it's going to be insane. So, um, <clears throat> last couple things here. Um, game I play FMK fuck marry kill yep three grapes 
And I was like, well, well I'm not going to do make this easy for him and put Pinot Noir on there. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, you know, I want to learn more about what you like to drink. So three grapes. Which one are you fucking? Which one would you marry? Which one are you killing off? You're never going to have again. Uh, Zinfandel, mm-hmm. Tempranillo, Sangiovese. Uh, I would kill Sangiovese only wow. because it, it is so unique to the area. I, I don't see it making great wine, much like Nebbiolo as well. Yeah. Don't see it making truly great wine outside at this of point it. outside of its own area. Yep. So that's what I would kill. Um, I would probably marry Zen mm-hmm. um, and would probably fuck Tempranillo. There you go. So. <laughs> Um, do you want to hear about the game? I invented a drinking game. Yes. Yes. I did this one time uh, with the winemaker. I invented it. So it's an 800 line, and you have to call an 800 line, and it has to be a porn line. Okay. So you call it. So you call 1-800-BIG-DICK. Um, it's a gay porn line, which, but if, if I'm right... Everybody else has to drink, but you can't repeat it. So then the next person has to come up with one. They call 1-800-BIG-TITS. So that's a porn line. So they have to, it's really a spelling game more than Oh, my God. Yeah, else. so it's like it's like Wordle meets wine. Yeah. So you keep drinking as you go around and around and around, and it becomes more and more difficult. Um, but the great thing is everybody starts drinking right off because the first ones are easy. Yeah, it becomes more difficult, and you really get to see in people's sexual productivities ah. because you're, plus you're drinking like, wow, really? Yeah. Okay, you went there. <laughs> uh, it, it, we were drunk and we a whole group of us winemakers at World of Pinot Noir we were drunk and we ended up going downstairs this was back when it was at Shell Beach and we broke into the bar and got a bottle of Patron because we'd run out of alcohol in the room and this one winemaker she comes up with 1-800-FELCHING <laughs> and everybody's like what's felching yeah, yeah and that was her yeah yeah so, but it's a fun drinking. All right, I, I might have to fuck with that one. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, you already answered, but I, 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 the question is like the bottle of wine that started all. It sounds like it was like that eighty-four Rocchioli. It really was the yeah. eighty-four Rocchioli was the first one. But I, I do remember even before that, I got taken out with that girl um, who in a, on her like prom formal kind of thing, mm-hmm. and she's like, we're going out to this nice dinner. I'm taking you out. And her family drank some wine and she bought a bottle of Chianti that wasn't in a wicker basket. It was a nice bottle. And I do remember that also just as like, there's something more here. There's Mm -hmm. something in addition to just drinking to get wasted. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love that. And um, Adam, you know, you talked about this like, you know, how long, much longer I'm going to do this and it'd be time to walk away in the sunset. But what are you most excited for about the future? Um, I'm really excited to see a few different things. I mean, exci- I've got three kids, three fantastic mm. kids. Uh, my daughter just recently had her first picture in the Wine Spectator. Oh, wow. Had awesome. A, she's a photographer. photographer. Yeah. So, awesome. and she's doing some stuff for, with a guy named Aaron Minenberg, good Vitas. She's doing all the photography there. That's really exciting to yeah. see where she's going. My youngest is a junior in high school. I have no idea what's going to go on with him, but um, he's six 
four two forty three nose guard on the football does team. Does he play some sports? Yeah, he does. And then my oldest, twenty three, um, uh, he and his girlfriend Abby just met Murray and I in New Orleans. He's always been the foodie. He went to Trinity, same college I did. In college, um, I got in trouble because I set off the fire alarm. I was drunk and pulled the fire alarm in the dorm. <laughs> he said, so he sets off the, the false alarm, yeah, yeah, motherfucker. Yeah, he sets off the fire alarm in the dorm, <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, he was searing foie gras on a new cast iron skin and they didn't have good ventilation in the kitchen. And that's how he got in trouble. I, I'm so excited to see what they're going to do. I'm incredibly excited to see what Marae's going to do and where she's going to take wine. Uh, you know, I, I'm so fortunate at Siduri. So the winemaker Ed Brander started his uh, winemaking career at Siduri. Um, the first, uh, I mentioned Carlisle wine was made at Siduri. Copan wine was mm. made, the first vintage wow. at Siduri. Um, we've just had people who've come along and come through that. And to me, that's longer term than whatever particular yeah, we're bottle. Talking, we're I've talking made. legacy. We're really yeah, talking legacy. That's what I'm excited to see. Man, listen, I'm going to come visit you in Windsor because we could fucking talk for hours. Yep. Um, Thank you so much for coming, Adam. Tell people where they can find you, how they can be a part of what you're doing. Sure. ClaryceWineCompany.com. And once you get on there, you'll hear about Marais Wine. You'll hear about Beaumarche. You'll hear about Busy Signal Dial Tone. Um, we are making Pinot for Rombauer now. That's a brand new project. Oh, Did yeah. you even oh, get yeah. to talk she, to you about I think that? she, she um, mentioned it, but it wasn't yeah. it wasn't talkable. She told me after. Yeah. But now, yeah, so we're now the Pinot makers started that in San Lucia Highlands okay. for them. That's so we're, we're the makers along with Richie and their winemaking team there on that. Um, you'll hear about all the different... We're looking at a project over in Lyrac in the south of France. Ooh. Uh, yeah, right across from Chateauneuf. I love Lyrac. That's... Um, you'll hear about all of these things if you go to ClaireEastWineCompany.com. Very cool. And just gives us more and more to talk about. Hey, everybody. Uh, I'll put... You know, make sure you check out the show notes for the show. That's where I'll put the links to uh, 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 the wine, his websites, uh, information on the wine we drank. And, uh, you know, to all my uh, mavericks, my philosophers, my deep thinkers, and all my wine drinkers, it's your boy MJ. Peace. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned something. You had some fun while you were here. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to. And if you want to be an insider and get special content, make sure you go over to blackwineguy.com and get on our email list.